Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Abraham in Three Movements for the Second Sunday in Lent. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 17, 2008. About 4,000 years ago, a family of nomads left Ur of the Chaldeans, perhaps in southeastern Iraq near Nazaria, and settled in Haran, Turkey, on the Syrian border. In Haran, the family patriarch died, while his son Abraham started hearing voices. In time, Abraham believed that those voices were the very call of God, and so he dared to obey those voices. Leave your country, God told Abraham. Leave your people and your family. Leave all that you hold dear and familiar. Go to the land I will show you. And so we read in Genesis chapter 12, So Abraham left as the Lord had told him. He couldn't have known it at the time, but in leaving Haran, Abraham altered human history forever. Abraham set out in faith, not knowing where he was going or even why he was going, except that God could, had commanded him to do so. He defied both the inner propensities of human nature and the outer pressures of cultural conformity that call us in the exact opposite direction. We want to journey from the unknown to the known, from what we don't have to what we think we need, from the strange and the unpredictable to the safe and the secure, and from mere promises to absolute guarantees. Whereas Abraham acted wholeheartedly, but without absolute certainty, we often demand certainty and act timidly. God's call upon Abraham's life is a call that's repeated to each one of us today. It's a call that subverts conventional wisdom, and so it can feel counterintuitive. For it's a call to move beyond three very human, powerful, and deep-seated fears. Fear of the unknown that we can't control. Ignorance. Fear of others who are different from us. Inclusion. And fear of powerlessness in the face of impossibilities. Impotence. Abraham's departure from Haran is a story about more than a change of geography. In leaving Haran for Canaan, Abraham left all that was familiar, all custom and comfort, family and friends, all the regularity and rhythm of his life. The only thing he would retain of Haran was the power of memory. He journeyed from present clarity into a future of profound ignorance. Abraham journeyed from what he had to what he did not have, from the known 
to the unknown, from everything that was familiar to all things strange. And so, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, the New Testament salutes Abraham as a hero of faith. There we read, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. In his journey into the unknown, Abraham embraced ignorance. He relinquished control and chose to live with confidence in God's promise to bless him in a new and strange place. But that required a second choice on his part. He had to leave not only his geographic place, he had to leave behind his narrow-minded, small-minded parochial vision, the tendency in all of us to exclude the strange and the stranger. God gave a staggering promise to this obscure Semitic nomad. In response to his obedience, God would make him the benefactor of all the world. There's a simultaneous narrowing and expansion of God's action in history, a movement from the particular to the universal. God calls a single individual, Abraham, and promises that he will inherit the entire earth. There's a progressive expansion in God's promise. First, God vows to make of him a great nation. Later, we read in Paul that he's a father of many nations, Romans 4.17 and Genesis 17.5. We then read that all peoples on earth will be blessed through Abraham. And once again, the New Testament commentary elucidates this Old Testament story. Through this one man and the one nation Israel, God made Abraham the father of us all, Romans 4, 16 and 17. And so, in one particular person, God enacted his universal embrace of all humanity. In Romans 3, 29, Paul asked a provocative question. Is God the God of Jews only? Or is he not also the God of Gentiles? In contrast to every attempt to claim God as ours and ours alone, Paul says that in Abraham, God loves all people equally. Or in the famous words of this week's gospel text, God so loves all the world, John 3.16. Our tendency is to fear the other, to marginalize the strange, to dismiss all that is different from who and what we know. In his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, Pastor Eugene Peterson comments on this sectarian, narcissistic narrow-mindedness. 
Quoting Peterson, We exclude all who don't suit our preferences. We become a sect. Sects are composed of men and women who reinforce their basic selfism by banding together with others who are pursuing similar brands of selfism, liking the same foods, believing in the same idols, playing the same games, despising the same outsiders. A sect is accomplished by community reduction, getting rid of what doesn't please us, getting rid of what offends us, whether of ideas or of people. We construct religious clubs instead of entering resurrection communities. But with the call of Abraham, the long, slow, complex, and still continuing movement to pull all these selves into one people of God community began. The birthing of Jesus' community on the day of Pentecost was an implicit but emphatic repudiation and then reversal of Babel sectarianism. End quote. Instead of exclusionary parochialism, instead of dividing people out of the community according to our own tastes and predisposition, God calls us to a universal and inclusive embrace, embrace of every person, and as he says, all peoples on earth. Genesis 12. There was one problem to this divine promise of progeny to bless the entire world through a single individual who had journeyed into the unknown. Abraham and his wife Sarah were both about 75 years old, and although they might not have enjoyed our knowledge of the biology of human reproduction, they knew that they were beyond their childbearing years. Humanly speaking, they faced an impossibility that brought them face to face with their own powerlessness to alter their circumstances. As the book of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 12 puts it, as for bearing a child, barren Sarah and impotent Abraham were, quote, as good as dead. <clears throat> but Abraham made a counterintuitive and subversive choice. He believed that God had the power to perform what he had promised. He believed in the words of Romans chapter 4, 17 and 21, that he's a God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. That is to say, Abraham moved beyond his fear of powerlessness to faith that God could, quite literally, make something out of nothing. And so, after a few false starts, Isaac, the son of promise, was born. When God called Abraham, he subverted conventional wisdom and moved beyond normal and understandable human fears, ignorance, inclusion, and impotence. Instead of lamenting his ignorance and the loss of control, he embarked upon a journey into the unknown. 
Instead of fearing inclusion of the stranger and the outsider, he bore God's promise of universal blessings for the whole earth. And in the face of his own impotence, he believed that God could do the impossible. And in so doing, Abraham, says the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, is the father of us all. The longest and the hardest journey is not the journey without, but the journey within. As the poet George Herbert says, the heart must bear the hardest part. The geography of ancient Canaan pales in comparison to the complex geography of the human heart. St. Augustine once cautioned Christians, quote, Whoever thinks that in this mortal life a person may so disperse the mists of bodily and carnal imaginings so as to possess the unclouded light of changeless truth and to cleave to it with the unswerving constancy of spirit wholly estranged from the common ways of life, such a person understands neither what he seeks nor who he is who seeks it. Lent, then, is not merely about giving up chocolate, meat, or alcohol. Those are only external reminders of an internal transformation that we seek. Our ultimate journey is to move from a self-regarding heart curved in on itself to an other-regarding openness to the love of God, a love for others, and truly a love for all the world. That's a journey that lasts a lifetime. The truly good news, writes Pastor Craig Barnes, is that all the roads belong to God, and the Savior can use any road to bring us home. And for further reflection, where are you on your spiritual journey? Which of Abraham's three movements speaks most to you? Ignorance, inclusion, or impotence? Reflect on the truth in Romans chapter 4, 17, and 21 that God gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. And finally, meditate upon Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. And for both books this week, I review a commentary on the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The book is by Matthew Levering, Ezra and Nehemiah, Brazos Theological Commentary on the Bible, Grand Rapids, Brazos Press, 2007, 236 pages. Matthew Levering's book, 
is the fourth installment in Brazos's projected 40-volume series of theological commentaries on the Bible. Yaroslav Pelikan began the series with a masterful study of the book of Acts in 2005. Peter Leithart studied 1st and 2nd Kings, 2006. And Stanley Hauerwas of Duke University tackled the Gospel of Matthew, 2007. Levering's commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah stands or falls on three very particular working assumptions. First, he takes as a template the idea of holy people and holy land, based upon previous work of his published in 2005. It's obvious that Ezra and Nehemiah treat of Israel's post-exilic return to the land the rebuilding of the temple, and the restoration of liturgical life under the Torah. But if you were unfamiliar with or take an exception to this template, then Levering's commentary will disappoint. Second, Levering reads Ezra and Nehemiah in light of other canonical books, which left me feeling like the books had little meaning or significance of their own for readers back then or now. Passages that speak of the exiles re- observing the Passover example evoke John one twenty nine that Jesus is the Passover lamb, or again references to the rebuilding of the walls elicit cross-references to Christ the foundation in 1 Corinthians 3.11 and the cornerstone in 1 Peter 2.7. The walls of Nehemiah draw comparisons to a theology of the church. With the renewal of the covenant in Nehemiah 10, Levering draws an extended, quote-unquote, connection with the Lord's Prayer. Whether consciously or not, these rather spiritualized comparisons seem to follow the mystical commentary of the Venerable Bede of the 8th century, which might be Levering's single most quoted source. He's surely right that this way of reading scripture gives the commentary the flavor of a pastiche of biblical quotations. Levering reads the Bible like this because of his third assumption about the nature of human history. In his view, history is not merely the linear progression of time, but the non-chronological relationships through which past, present, and future human beings share in different ways the same realities. This complex so-called unity of past, present, and future, he admits, is a view that, quote, escapes the historian's tools, but to which the theologian is somehow privy. On all three counts, I remain unconvinced. Matthew Levering, Ezra and Nehemiah, the Brazos Theological Commentary on the Bible. For film this week, I review a Spanish film called Talk to Her from the year 2002. 
This film begins in one place by provoking questions about whether life in a persistent vegetative state is truly life, and whether and how a loved one might relate, if at all, to a person in such a coma. Marco is a travel writer whose girlfriend Lydia is in a coma. When he asks the doctor whether there is any hope, the doctor responds, medically or scientifically, no. But if you choose to believe, go ahead. The male nurse, Benino, does believe. He truly loves the dancer, Alicia, who was a patient of his also in a coma. He talks to her, bathes her, cuts her hair, and tenderly cares for her. He tells Marcos that the last four years caring for her have been the richest and most rewarding years of his life. The film would have been good enough with just this trajectory. But director Pedro Almodovar drives three of these four subjects toward entirely unexpected and ambiguous ends that leave you with many more questions than answers. In Spanish, with English subtitles, talk to her. And finally, for the Lenten season, we continue our series of poetry by George Herbert. George Herbert lived from 1593 to 1633. The title of this week's poem by George Herbert is called The Hold Fast. I threaten to observe the strict decree of my dear God with all my power and might. But I was told by one it could not be, yet I might trust in God to be my light. Then will I trust, said I, in him alone. Nay, even to trust in him was also his. We must confess that nothing is our own. Then I confess that he my succor is. But to have not is ours. Not to confess that we have not. I stood amazed at this. Much troubled till I heard a friend express that all things were more ours by being his. What Adam had and forfeited for all, Christ keepeth now, who cannot fail or fall. The Holdfast by George Herbert. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 10th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.